Verge podcast with Real Lit. Neil, we've got Jack O'Mara on the show today. Who is Jack? Yeah, so I first met Jack during the company's last financing, where, for full disclosure, BioVerge participated in. Um, so I'm thrilled to have Jack on the podcast today. Uh, Jack is a biomedical engineer by training. He has uh, a background in bringing new novel therapies uh, to market. Uh, he helped get one of the first blockbuster gene therapies uh, through approval at the FDA and EMA. It was a drug being developed by Avexis Zolgensma. Uh, for spinal muscular atrophy, which is a rare genetic disease. Uh, f- for, for listeners who uh, are sort of deep in the space, Avexis was bought by Novartis for uh, about $8.7 billion at the time. So Jack has a lot of experience uh, in the space uh, developing you know, novel therapies. Uh, and so he is the CEO of uh, Okra Bio, uh, which, uh, well, we'll talk about in a minute, but they're developing novel RNA medicines for chronic liver diseases. Well, what makes Okrabio so compelling to you? Yeah, so they're doing a number of things, I think, really differently, which is super compelling. Number one, they are using uh, live human livers as a way to test their drugs. So these are livers that are, are not suitable for transplantation, that they keep alive, obviously outside the human body, and then they're able to test their therapies uh, on these live human livers. So the idea is that you know by using a live human liver as opposed to animal models, they have a better sense of you know recapitulating human disease clearly. And the idea is that that should better translate into human clinical trials. So to me, that's really exciting. And then of course they have this whole platform technology. Um, you know, they, they sort of call it complexity at scale that involves, you know, computation, automation, something that they call deep phenotyping, which we'll get into. Um, and they're using all of that in the context of testing therapies in live human livers, to me, is a huge differentiator. And I think gives them an edge as they move into human clinical trials. There's a chart on the Ochre Bio homepage that is rather striking. It, it shows chronic liver disease is the only of the top 10 killers that has been rising since 1970. You, you think of the liver as being one of the most accessible targets for drugs. Why is this such a growing problem? That's a really good question, Danny. And to be perfectly honest, I don't have the answer. So I'm excited to ask Jack about that. But you're, you're right. I mean, it, it is a top 10 global killer. It feels like we have not made really any significant advances, right? Liver transplant is still the gold standard. We know that there's a shortage of available livers in this country. And we know that even a lot of livers that are available for transplant aren't suitable for transplant um, for a variety of different reasons. So it's a major problem. I don't know what why we haven't made more progress, but I'm sure Jack has a good opinion about that. Well, what are you hoping to hear from Jack today? I'm hoping to uh, hear from Jack a little more about you know what uh, what what I sort of classify as their edge, right? Why do they think their model of keeping you know human livers live outside the body and testing you know their their drugs in those livers will help them translate their therapeutics into human clinical trials in a more successful fashion than what is ordinarily done? 
Uh, I'm really curious about their technology platform as well, right? So what are the inputs they're looking for? What is this sort of, you know, human liver atlas that they're creating? Um, deep phenotyping is a term that I had never come across before we started doing diligence on the company. So I'm excited for Jack to explain, you know, what deep phenotyping is and, and why that helps give them an edge as well. So, uh, you know, th this is, I think, a really interesting approach between their sort of, you know, computational aspect and their sort of novel approach to testing therapies in, in live livers. Well, if you're all set, let's do it, Danny. Today, we are here with co-founder and CEO of Ochre Bio, Jack O'Mara. Jack, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I am really thrilled to talk to you uh, today about what you are building at Okra. Um, you know, today, we're going to talk about your efforts to develop RNA therapeutics to treat complex and chronic liver diseases. Uh, so why don't we start with the problem? Um, how big a problem is chronic liver disease? So this is the thing I think people don't fully appreciate is that chronic liver disease is the only is the third largest cause, leading cause of premature death for much of the Western world. It's almost on par with cancer. It is one of the it's the only chronic disease that continues unabated. There is uh, most other indications we've made significant headway with, but chronic liver disease is the only top ten killer that continues to get worse, and there is remains a serious dearth of of innovation for patients. It affects a huge number of people, and we're really optimistic and, and excited to hope to one day make a difference for those patients. And, and uh, Jack, wh why do you feel like there's been such a, a dearth of innovation in, in this area? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really good question and part, a big part of the founding thesis behind, behind Okobios is to try and solve some of the challenges that plague chronic liver disease drug development. The first thing is, for like a lot of chronic diseases of aging, we still don't fully understand the biology. So it, like Alzheimer's and others, a lot of the biological hypotheses have been disproven and still don't really get efficacy in the clinic. Secondly, the preclinical models we use to study therapeutics just don't recapitulate the disease in patients. So mice models are very poorly predictive of how clinical trials will go. Mice actually have 12 liver lobes where humans have two. It's quite a different physiological state. And then lastly, clinical trials for chronic diseases of, of aging, like, like what a lot of chronic liver disease is, is are really difficult because it's a silent disease for so long and we don't have very good biomarkers to actually test and, and determine the efficacy of, of new therapeutics. So as a result, you end up having to run these very long, very expensive clinical trials. And that just serves as a major disincentive for, for pharmaceutical developers to actually enter the space and particularly challenging for, for small biotechs. So we've basically built the company at Okra around trying to solve each of those individual problems. And I can tell you a bit about that, but I'll, I'll pause there before I go any further. Yeah, no, that's great. There, there's a number of points that I want to dive into there, yeah. you know, particularly around the preclinical models. Um, but, yeah. but I want to just circle back to the underlying pathology of liver diseases. It, you know, obviously the biology, as you said, is, is, is still being elucidated. We don't necessarily understand all the pathologies. But is, is, is there a, a sort of a single pathology that typically leads to chronic liver disease? Or is, are there multiple underlying pathologies? Is, is that understood at this point? There, there, it's definitely not one disease. <laughs> it's definitely a, a variety of, it's a multifactorial problem. There's a variety of underlying areas that they kind of all converge in the same 
thing, like a lot of different ways to get to the same place that ultimately ends up in needing a liver transplant and a cirrhotic failing failing liver. But there are definitely a, a, a multifactorial problem. And that's one of the things you got to think very carefully about as drug developers is how do you... Yeah, how do you make sure you're giving yourself the best chance of success, bearing in mind that there are multiple cell types and multiple different things going wrong for these patients? So let, let's talk about th- that one point for a minute in terms of the gold standard for treating liver diseases. Um, today is transplantation. Uh, I think as, yep. as probably everyone knows, right, there's a significant shortage of, yep. of livers that are available for transplant. And even the ones that are available for transplant, uh, there can often be an issue in terms of the quality of the organs that are deemed appropriate for transplant. Could you talk a little bit about those two issues? Yeah. So, so this is, it, 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 transplant is such a blunt tool. It's such, it's such a, it, as you said, it is, there's very few organs available for patients, but over the past 20 years, transplant surgeons have been plagued by this, this challenge in that donor organ quality continues on the decline. It's largely as a result of us as a society, number one, living longer, which is a good thing, but it means our organs are in worse shape by the time we, we, um, we, we pass. And then secondly, the lifestyle we now live in much of the Western world is a lot more calorie dense and a lot more sedentary. And that ultimately means that organ quality tends to be a lot fattier, a lot less healthy by the time it's actually being given to to a patient who needs it. So as a result, on the front side of the funnel, the organ quality is actually going down. The availability of donor organs is getting less despite the need, particularly for for, uh, fatty liver disease and other indications that are driving the number of, of transplants needed. So despite the need getting larger the actual solution is getting smaller and that at Okabayo is sort of the, a, li- a little bit of the initial light bulb moment what, for for us was that we could develop therapies using preclinical models that are these discarded fatty donor livers is a great way to test out whether our therapeutic interventions will actually work and ultimately go to clinic initially to try and improve the use of these of trying to expand the pool of available donor organs by pre-treating and essentially rejuvenating fatty donor livers so that they can be used and have better outcomes for patients who receive them. But in doing so, stepping stone our way into larger and larger indications like fatty liver disease and ultimately one day like liver cirrhosis and and, and other later stages of the disease. So, Jack, I want to pick up on that thread, right? One of the things that really attracted me from an investment standpoint to Ochre, and and in full disclosure, Bioverge is an investor in, in Ochre, um, is that you're using actual human livers that are kept alive outside of the body to test drugs, right? First, first of all, I mean, it's, it's really kind of amazing we can do that at all. Um, yeah. but, but, but I'm curious sort of how this approach uh, compares to using some of the standard animal models that you referenced earlier. Yeah, so we are really pioneering a new a new approach to, to doing discovery for not only liver disease, but this is, this is a real uh, step change. We, we like, we think for a lot of drug, for a lot of big indications like this. So there really isn't anything that recapitulates human disease better than a, a diseased human organ. <laughs> and it, 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 there are obviously some, it's not a perfectly clean model. And there are obviously challenges with just logistics of getting access to human livers and being able to get them onto devices in the requisite time period and sustaining them. There, there are definitely scientific challenges that we've been throwing a lot of effort into solving. But in terms of the quality of the data that we're going to get out of them, we really don't think it's, it, we think it's night and day by comparison to, to an animal who, who oftentimes just doesn't get chronic disease in the same way humans do, or even a lot of the 
the IPSC models that are now quite in vogue for liver disease, they're oftentimes more early, by their nature, are are young cells, whereas this disease is really a disease of of old livers. And we think by actually taking them and keeping them alive, we've got the best possible chance of of de-risking our therapies and being sure that what we actually put into the clinic and into a human being is really going to improve that human being's health, which is ultimately the, the goal here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, as you know, many of our listeners know, I mean, w- one of the major obstacles is being able to recapitulate human disease in animal models. And, you know, we've cur- cured countless mice of cancer, for example. But, of course, those, those yeah. therapies fail to translate when you move into human clinical trials. So I, I really love the approach that you're taking here. Um, so I, I do want to spend another minute on it. What, it, yeah. it is, is the goal then to complement what, what others or, or what you would be doing in animal models or to, to completely replace the need to use animal models? So first off, we, we will be doing humanized mice work primarily for regulatory submissions and primarily for long-term safety data, which you don't get in a, in a human organ on a device to be sure that what we put into the clinic is, is safe and effective. But for us to get conviction on the biology that we think is going to be most impactful for patients, we are solely basing those decisions around which target, which therapy off of the data we develop from from the whole human organ, organ model. There are other workups. Animal models and other models have a strong bring a lot of value for particular elements of of drug development, but for pure conviction on what biology is really going to make an impact for patients, that for us is is the actual whole human liver model. And that is still to this day, across any indication, the primary reason drugs fail is that the biological hypothesis was wrong. Not that the chemistry or the ligand was slightly better than the other. It tends to be that we actually don't, we're actually not picking the right target. And that's a lot of what OkaBio is is kind of founded on, is really studying, using advanced genomics, using big computation, big data, and human-relevant models to study, get conviction on the right right areas of biology, be sure that what we go, what we go into the clinical work, and then thinking about clinical development in sort of a, a creative and strategic way as a company. Yeah, that's that's so cool, and I want to. I I do want to dive into sort of the the data that you're collecting and and your actual drug development process in in a minute. But just you know, one comment from an investor standpoint, you know, one of the things that we look for at Bioverge is like we are super interested in companies that we feel like have some sort of edge uh, in some form or fashion to better predict how a drug is going to perform in in human clinical trials. Right? If if as an industry we can solve that singular issue, we're going to unlock a ton of value, both financially, but even more importantly for patients. So to me, what you guys are doing uh, and, and this approach of u- using you know, live human uh, livers is a huge point of differentiation. Um, I, I know you recently launched a, uh, I guess what you call a liver ICU in New York. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is one of those um, sort of, I was there when we did our first liver perfusion in New York, and it is a really profound sort of moment to, to be in the room for. But this is a, yeah, it was a real seminal moment for the company where essentially what we've done is we've, we've set up a, a facility that operates, it's almost like a hospital ICU in that we have transplant surgeons there 24-7 who are on, on call or on site to take organs that have gone on offer for transplant and every patient weren't a fit or they were too diseased to be taken and they arrive middle of the night any time of day and we take them put them on these devices these human liver perfusion devices and essentially what that does is it re it recapitulates human physiology so it it has a oxygenator it has a sped of lungs a kidney a, a heart beating and it pumps the 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 liver with with blood 
to essentially sustain it as if it were thinking it's in a human. And then we use that as a model to test out our therapeutic interventions and ultimately, as you say, um, really get confidence in a way that's quite unique around the types of drugs that we think will be most impactful for, for patients. So it's a, it's a really big, and I, I should also give a shout out to just the team who've been able to pull this off. This really isn't my achievement. We have a wonderful team uh, internally to coordinate all of that work and make sure we've got processes in place to fly in livers from at the right time and, at, and very sophisticated systems now for, for handoff of, between teams. And we also have, a, have partners with Yale University, LifeShare of Oklahoma, which is an organ, procurement organization in, in Oklahoma, who have just been incredible partners and incredibly strong belief in this vision for, for liver disease. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a team effort is, is what I would say. So, Jack, one additional question comes to mind, right? So you're using livers that are not appropriate for transplantation, obviously, otherwise they yes. would be transplanted. Um, do, do you need to do anything to those livers to get them healthy enough to use for your purposes? Like how predictive are these damaged livers for, for your needs? Well, that's, that's exactly the, the kind of beauty of this is they are the organs we hope to improve such that when we go into a clinical trial, that's the type, the same type of biology we hope to to remedy for patients who um who ultimately will lead, will end up receiving fatty donor livers. So the typical inclusion criteria for the organs we receive is ste- severe steatosis. So in in clinical right in clinical context right now, transplant surgeons are having to to transplant thirty to sixty percent steatotic donor livers anyway, just because of how severe the sh- the shortage is. So we're taking those that are on that kind of brink or a little bit worse, putting them on our device and ultimately aiming to improve the physiology of those organs such that we can do prove that out in a preclinical context so that when we go into the clinic, we can be really confident that we'll be able to have the same impact on that same category of liver, potentially even slightly less less fatty. So we have, we're, we're even in a slightly better position when we get into the clinic to make sure we have a, an impact for patients. But yeah, in, in summary, it is the organ we hope to be able to treat. So we're glad to take the, those, uh, those slightly less qual- lower quality organs. So I, th- I think this is actually a, a great segue into what I want to talk about next, which is your actual drug discovery platform. Um, so you're doing sort of you know drug discovery that allows you to do what well, I guess what you guys call complexity at scale, which combines computation, automation, uh, deep phenotyping, which I, I want to get into momentarily. But let's start with the range of data that you are able to capture. Like what what types of things are you looking for? What are the inputs you're trying to capture, and how do you envision that helping to inform your drug discovery efforts? Yeah. So the the from a readout perspective of on the liver ICU piece, the primary, the biomarkers, the endpoints we look to, we, we divide into primary, ter- secondary, and tertiary endpoints that we're ultimately measuring in these livers to get conviction that the, the, the therapies we're taking forward are going to be successful. Primary endpoints are what the regulator wants to see. That's histopathology. Do we fundamentally change the histopathology of those organs while on the device? Secondary is, is also with a view to the clinic that's around some of the liver enzymes as you would get out of a blood readout from a patient in a clinical context. Do we see changes in ALT, AST, bilirubin, some of these kind of quintessential clinical readouts that, that ultimately doctors use in, in, for, for patients. And then ter- the tertiary readouts are all around the genomics. So do we see changes from a, on a transcriptomic level that, inc- that encourage us or discourage us around the relevance of the biology that we're moving forward uh, for, for ultimately taking, taking this, this therapy into, into a clinical context? That's our primary endpoints from a preclinical perspective. For, from an input into our platform to give us, to actually study disease bio, biology and give us 
confidence around certain targets that we want to test out, we we built up a robust, probably more genomic data. We can quietly, confidently say one of the most uh, r- richest data sets of, of genomic data on the human liver out there. One of our kind of premier flagship projects when we first started the company was to take a thousand donor livers from a biobank in Oxford and did a full spatial sequencing workup matched to 150 clinical variables on these patients and all the outcomes data from a transplant context to really build a very robust disease progression model because it was, it was such a wide spectrum of, of disease stages to really understand what are the drivers of the disease and what are the targets that play a role at different stages of the disease to give us the best best chance of success when we take those forward into into preclinical and clinical testing. Anyway, I'll pause there. I think there's a lot of, a lot of information in that, so I want to... Give you a chance to... Yeah, no, that, that that's great. I, I want to I want to sort of tie that back to this concept of deep phenotyping and that how that fits into sort of this atlas that your liver atlas that you're building. So when when we were doing diligence at, at Bioverse, this wasn't a term I was familiar with before. Can can you describe what you mean by deep phenotyping? Yeah, so so deep phenotyping is sort of the convergence of phenotypic data. So in our case, imaging and AI algorithms to study the actual disease histopathology in a, in a live human liver or human tissue sample, I matched with genomic data, so transcriptomic data, so that we can see how that changes across different sections of tissue in partnership with genetic data. So we have some of the underlying kind of basis of the, of the tissue types and a, an element of machine learning or computational statistical tools to model all that, to give us clues as to what are actually driving the pathology and how can we best intervene in, in that pathology. Okay, so um, that that all makes sense. So I, you know, the, the goal of doing all of this is to then develop therapeutics, right? And yep. and in your case, you're focused on developing RNA-based therapies with the hopes of modulating activity within the liver. Um, let's let's just start with you know why RNA therapies specifically, and why not other modalities. We love RNA for a whole host of reasons. The first one is speed. You know, like we can go very quickly from seeing a target, seeing signal in our data to believing in a target to testing out an RNA therapy in a whole human liver. I mean, in a matter of weeks, whereas if you're doing small molecule discovery, it would take take years to get get confidence in that that biology. It's also uh, an incredible modality in terms of longevity of, of effect. So we can deliver a therapy to an organ ex vivo and then see that therapeutic window play out for six plus months in the patient thereafter, which is particularly exciting for us given our first our first clinical study will likely be an ex vivo therapeutic for, for transplant patients. And then lastly, I mean, it's, 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 it's been clinically de-risked now. Regulators are more comfortable with it. We know it has a very high safety profile. So for a chronic liver, chronic disease like, like NASH or chronic liver disease, you know, you can confidently say you'll be able to redose without worries about off-target effects as much as other, other modalities. And, and yeah, it's definitely feels like the era of RNA. It's gotten, it's even now a household name. People are even more, more mm-hmm. comfortable talking about it outside of the, the drug development space. So we're, we're pretty excited about, about RNA. No, that's that's so true, and, and actually, I, you know, that brings up a good point. Is is the you know everyone's now familiar with mRNA, right? So, are the yeah. types of therapies you're developing are they specifically mRNA, or are they another no. flavor of RNA? No, we we we're sort of the if mRNA is the the what tells the turns the gene on, we're 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 turning it off. So we're an siRNA primarily. Okay, oligos. Okay. So we we are beginning to branch out as well, but primarily today, our, our interest is in oligos. 
And and as you said, I mean, you know, everyone knows what RNA is in today's world. You know, regulators are much more comfortable with you know RNA-based therapeutics, at least in the context of, of vaccines, obviously. Um, but there there are still some challenges, um, and you alluded to some of them. Um, but you know, some of them include the you know ability to control duration of the therapeutic effect, the specificity, um, and, and targeting that these drugs, making sure they are going to the right tissue, the right cells. You know, how significant do you feel like these challenges are, um, and and where are you in terms of trying to address some of these? Yeah, great question. And this is actually um, a sort of a nuanced point. And maybe it gets lost in when we broadly categorize all these different approaches as, as RNA medicine, which they are. But for, for mRNA, the real challenge has been specificity. And that's why they've been so successful with, with, with vaccines, but have been less so with, with other diseases. But for siRNA, which is the opposite sort of effect on, on RNA, the specificity is less of a challenge. There's been this incredible breakthrough in recent recent years called called Galnac, which is essentially a sugar you uh, you conjugate onto your siRNA that makes these therapies extremely liver or extremely hepatocyte specific and they've got this beautiful sort of pharmacokinetics where they they can stay in the hepatocyte for quite some time maintain a very long duration of effect with a very clean and very safe profile for patients so for for siRNA that specificity is is, is less it's actually much less of a challenge as well as but if you're that, is, that being said, if you're targeting hepatocyte targets primarily, um, and the duration effect is also is also quite nice. What we've been doing as we now begin to expand our portfolio beyond our, our initial program in transplant and, and NASH and look now at later stages of the disease like inflammation and even with a view into her- cirrhosis and, and, and regeneration, we're particularly focused on finding similar delivery technologies like like Gal- like what Galnac has done for hepatocytes but for other cell types of the liver so so for folks not that familiar with it as the disease progresses there just becomes more and more cell types co- contributing to that pathology so we in order to reverse that or be able to treat that we really think it's important to both continue to have an effect on metabolism and, and others in from a hepatocyte cell type, but also change some of the immuno or some of the actual stellate cell composition so that we can really have the, the best possible effect for, for those later stages of the disease. So we are investing quite heavily internally and haven't made any big announcements yet, but but will be soon around around some of the delivery technologies we think will have an effect or particularly be, be quite exciting for, for liver diseases more generally. Well, I look forward to those announcements. Um, Jack, you mentioned uh, your pipeline. I, I, I want to yeah. sort of break that into, into two components. So number one, um, you know, how successful has your approach been in, un- in uncovering new targets? Let's do that one first. And then I want to talk about, you know, where you are in terms of finding a lead candidate to move forward. But let, let's start with sort of identifying new targets to begin with. Yeah, so we were really excited about some of the outputs from our first major atlasing effort, which was this this thousand livers we took from from a partner here at Oxford, the university here, to to really build this large spatial sequencing study. And we came out of that with about 200, 250 targets we were really excited about. Now, it was relatively evenly split between targets that were very novel and targets that wouldn't surprise folks very close to the literature that we're, we're also seeing that. But that's great validation, right? You know, you know your platform is, is, is onto something if it's telling you all of the, the, what everyone else knows, but it's just telling you more, giving you larger clues into other potential avenues that could be impactful for patients. So we've taken those 200, 250, went through a very robust screening exercise in the models that we developed here in Oxford, a variety of different liver 
liver disease models to give us conviction that these targets will actually consistently and coherently improve improve the biology. And we're now down to about nine we think are really interesting um, and moving moving those towards into our lead, lead development stage and ultimately hope to get start getting those into perfused livers later this year, such that by by sometime next year, we'll, we'll nominate our first lead for, for IND enabling studies uh, and really move, move those into, into the clinic in the next, next 24 months is our, is our target. That's, that, that's, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, I, I want to talk about um, your process for identifying a lead candidate. I know, you know that's an ongoing effort right now, as you just mentioned. But what are some of the attributes you're looking for in, 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 like, in an ideal lead candidate to move forward? So... For us, the way we're thinking about clinical development, the first program where we've we've thought about in our heads is that we want to improve outcomes in a transplant context. And the two big areas of biology that we're interested in are cell death and stress and metabolism. The reason being to improve outcomes for transplant patients, uh, the primary endpoint there we're trying to hit is is essentially reducing early allograft dysfunction. Well, that means essentially reducing cell death and reducing ischemia in organs that have been transplanted such that they sustain the first few choppy months of post-transplanting and ultimately perform well for patients long term. The key secondary endpoint we're interested in in that transplant study is around recurrence rates of, of steatosis. So re- recurrence rates of fatty liver disease, which is oftentimes the, the actual cause of, of the transplant in the first place. And if we can see that we improve both cell the, the cell resilience or the ability to resist cell stress so that those organs do continue to perform well, but also that we've improved the metabolism such that we see a recurrence of, of fat buildup, that's when we know we've got a really interesting t- therapy that we can take both beyond the transplant setting where, it's, where we hope it'll be having a big impact into larger indications like NASH and, and, and beyond um, so that we can really go in and build a multi, multi expand the label essentially and build a multi, multi-product portfolio off of, off of that initial indication. So that's our, those are our two areas of biology we're particularly interested for our lead program. We are now, as we get more bigger and bolder and begin to expand and, and diversify beyond that, we're looking at later stages like fibrosis, regeneration, or even starting to look a little bit at cancer and cancer prevention through, um, through hepatoprotective agents that we've been studying in our labs. Jack, you, you just sparked another question. Um, and, you know, as far as I know, the liver is the only organ that is able to regenerate. Um, exactly, yeah. to, 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 to what extent are you able to rejuvenate or regenerate livers today to make them more suitable for transplantation, right? Is that your goal? Or are you really focused on delivering an in vivo therapy to restore the function of someone's liver so they don't need a transplant? So a little bit of both. And yeah, you you're, you hit the nail on the head. The liver is the only organ. And we've never really been able to figure out how it does this, but it can fully regrow. If you cut off two thirds of someone's liver, the whole organ can regrow to the original size and state really quickly, which is just, just bizarrely, uh, bizarre func- kind of abnormality of biology that if we can try and uncover and study could really lead to amazing biological breakthroughs for for human health more generally. So, and we're thinking quite deeply about that as we set up this new liver ICU in New York and can study whole organs in a closed circuit system to really try and tease, maybe tease apart some of that biology, which would be an amazing breakthrough for, for human health more generally. But anyway, that, that, that aside, your, your question was, I'm actually, your, your question was around whether, sorry, I've completely forgotten your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no problem. My, my question was around if, if, if you're really focused on um, regenerating livers to make them more suitable for a transplantation or if you're yes, looking to sorry. do like in vivo therapy so people don't need a liver transplant. 
it, it's it's been a it's been a long day for, for anyone <laughs> listening. No it's late here in the UK. The time zones are always a challenge. Um, so our our initial indication in the transplant space is essentially you could consider it a regenerative tool, but essentially to, to regenerate organs such that they would be more useful for patients who receive them. But the long-term goal for the company is not to be a, a transplant therapeutics company per se, but to be more generally a, a liver a liver regeneration company thereafter. But we think if we can prove it out in this first use case and transplant, we can then take those learnings and really expand our, our ambitions into, into in vivo therapeutics and thereby re- reduce the need for liver transplants. It's a horrible and really awful experience for a patient to go through. And if we can resist or, 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 or delay or actually re- ultimately reverse some of the damage that's been done in vivo, uh, patients hopefully one day won't have to actually go through that. That's, yeah, that, 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 I mean, that would be incredible um, if, if you can certainly achieve those outcomes. Um, Jack, I, I, you know, before we wrap up, because I know it is getting late in the UK, I, I do want to switch gears for a minute and talk about financing. So yeah. obviously you're a UK-based company. Uh, love to understand your investor base, if there are many or any European VCs that have supported you, or is it mainly US venture firms? That is such an interesting question. And I was talking about this at length this past weekend, actually with one of the team from Exantia who said they hadn't a UK investor until their IPO, which is crazy to me. <laughs> we, we, we fortunately aren't that bad. <laughs> one, of our, one of our early seed investors was, was a UK-based fund who were, were big fans of, shout out to Backed VC. Um, but to be quite honest with you, the large majority of our cap table is both US and, and Asian funds. And Europe really does, and I, I'm banging the drum, I don't if you follow me on Twitter, but I say this all, I'm always critical of the European financing landscape. It's, it tends to be very conservative. It doesn't want to take bets on high risk, high ambition projects like the one we're, we're, we're developing. Um, and yeah, it, it is a shame that there's less, less capital on this side of the pond than there is. But I mean, living in a global world, and I think COVID maybe accelerated this, it's, it's wonderful that capital can flow democ- democratically to all over the world, wherever the best science is. And capital will ultimately chase the best science with the, with the best possible chance of, of um, improving lives and delivering returns. So we, um, we're happy to take money from wherever the best people are. And we, we've found a lot of those to be actually in, in the U.S. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I you know, if people have, you know have been following you know me or Biverge for a while, I mean, we certainly beat the drum of, drum of democratizing access to companies like yours. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, to me, that's so powerful and exciting. Um, I do need to ask before I let you go about, you know, obviously the current financing environment is challenging, uh, to say the least. You know, as as you think about you know going out for your next round, as you think about sort of the the near term milestones and inflection points, how do you think the current financing environment, if at all, has sort of impacted your plans moving forward? Well, it, we, we've it's definitely impacted how we're how how we're thinking about setting up our programs. Some of the things we've done in response to just how quickly and, and dramatically things have shifted in the market is we've now put a, that's actually why I was late to this podcast. We've started engaging in business development conversations a lot more more seriously. We initially, I mean, if, if we had unlimited access to capital, you could take all these programs forward yourself and, and retain all of that value. But just being mindful that that may not be the case in, in the next couple of years, we've, we've decided to see if there are opportunities within the context of a multi-product portfolio, like the one we're building, to, to partner out and bring in some expertise from larger pharmaceuticals or otherwise, and ultimately bring in some funding that way as well. We've also, it also has just forced the, the organization to just be a little bit more, it's put, it's put a bit more of a challenge on, on how, how you think about growth. And it, just even in small ways, 
ways and, and as we think about longer term development plans and so on i think i think it'll be a good thing for companies to be quite honest if it puts you in a position where you need to just really justify every dollar in a way that 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 wasn't the sentiment of of the market over the last couple of years when and i think that will force ultimately better science to get through a more focused and concentrated portfolios which ultimately i hope think will be a good thing for for everyone but let's hope it doesn't stay as as uh, as bleak as things look now we are really in a in a quite a a bleak period of, of financing for for important companies like biotech. You know, there's there's so much money in tech, and I really it really frustrates me that more doesn't um, doesn't look to those those medicines that will save you know ultimately improve human health, human existence for everyone out there. So hopefully, um, we'll we'll see COVID. Although we've, things have reversed almost before uh, worse than they were at the, before COVID, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully we'll we'll start to see a bit of um, g- goodwill back in the biotech markets. Jack, I'm going to have to invite you back for another podcast and we could talk uh, for an entire another show about some of the discrepancies between the amount of capital flowing into tech versus versus biotech and early stage, you know, healthcare related assets. I mean, that is something I'm super passionate about, um, as as, as you know well. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more with you. And and I do sort of think like some of the younger generation and some people are starting to really, as they ask themselves, what do I want to do with my my life? Do Do I want to work in like back office automation software? Or do I want to work on something that could fundamentally change human health? I think people are coming to the sector in ways that they never were before in their droves with this idea of impact and improving the world we live in. And I hopefully hope that will increase the output of the sector and ultimately then increase more funding in, inflows into the sector. But it's not going to be it's not going to happen overnight. But I, I, I am bullish that this is going to be the decade or, or century of, of biology. So, um, so let's see if that, that prediction plays out. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I really do think we're in the age of biology, and in particular, this, 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 you know, right where, right where you guys sit, right, is this intersection of technology being combined with biology, right? I mean, you mentioned all of the sort of, you know, genomics and deep phenotyping, and all of the like the liver atlas. All those things are sort of based on a core technology platform, and you're wrapping that around, you know, trying to solve fundamental problems in biology. To me, like that's so exciting, and like that is the next wave of, I think, where. A ton of innovation is going to happen within healthcare that's going to you know, yep. directly impact patients. And, you know, by the way, we're all patients at some point in our lives, whether we like it or not. And, you know, I, I just I just got to say, Jack, before I let you go, you know, I, I think, you know, investing in, you know, these types of, of companies, right, like like Ochre and, you know, early stage innovative companies that are trying to make a real impact in healthcare or in patients' lives are not mutually exclusive with generating outsized financial returns, right? If you guys are successful, you know, there's huge upside here for investors that are supporting your company. So, so it goes back to like one of my underlying theses, just as like a human being is like, we can all do well by doing good. So totally agree. Um, Could not agree more. Could not agree more. So with that, I'm going to, I'll get off my high horse and um, <laughs> I will, uh, Jack, I know it's getting late there. You know, we could, we could talk for another probably four days about this sort of stuff, but I will let you go. And I, I did want to say a huge thank you for joining me on the show today and a really, really wonderful discussion. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to catching up in 3D soon. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a, a really fun and, and fascinating conversation. You know, I, you know, you, you heard me say during the podcast, you know, one of the things that we're super interested in at BioVerge is companies that we feel like have some sort of advantage in better predicting how drugs are going to perform in clinical trials, right? So we all know that animal models don't necessarily recapitulate human disease. And so, you know, what Jack and Okra is doing is they're using human livers. It makes a ton of sense. It's like, well, that sounds obvious. Why haven't we done that before? So it was really interesting to hear about, you know, that approach 
to hear about this sort of, you know, liver ICU that they recently launched in New York. Like that's, that's really cool. I haven't heard of anything like that before. Um, and then of course, you know, how all that is going to help them translate medicines that will, you know, ultimately help patients with, with chronic liver diseases. They're able to capture tremendous amounts of data in real time on these livers that are kept alive and functional outside the body. What's the potential to develop new understandings of the liver and, and discover novel targets? Yeah, you heard Jack mention, you know, talk a little bit about that, you know, when I asked him a question about developing novel targets. And, it, you know, it sounds like this is sort of twofold. It sounds like what they're doing now has validated a bunch of existing targets, which to me is really exciting because it helps validate their platform. Um, but then, you know, you heard him talk about that they've identified a bunch of new targets as well. So I think, you know, th this is this is sort of part of the overall thesis for investing in these types of companies that are marrying computational biology um, and some you know, like advanced, you know, whether it's machine learning, artificial intelligence or whatever it may be to come up with sort of novel targets and sort of usher drug discovery into, you know, the 21st century. You know, you, you wrap that around what they're doing with live human livers. And I think that one, two punch is a really powerful combination. So I think it's, it's really cool that they already have some validation. They've already found some new targets. They have a bunch of lead candidates that they're sort of, you know, processing through to try to, you know, settle on, you know, one or a handful uh, to move into the clinic sounds like they're planning to be, you know, ho hopefully, um, you know, moving forward in, in 2023 with a lead candidate and probably moving into IND enabling studies, I would assume shortly thereafter. With the ability to capture so much data, how challenging do you think it will be to separate signal from noise and determine what data are meaningful? Yeah, I mean, that's a hugely important question, Danny. I mean, that that's, you know, separating signal from noise is sort of the, the holy grail of, you know, making sure that you have usable data. So it sounds like they have systems in place to, to set that up. It sounds like they've invested heavily in, um, you know, sort of, again, what they call developing complexity at scale, right? So they, they have the computational throughput. They have a lot of the automation in place. They have this sort of deep phenotyping, uh, you know, platform. It sounds like they're able to, you know, ingest all of this data uh, and analyze it in a way that gives them information that then informs their discovery efforts. So, you know, I'm sure there's still a ton of work to be done. Um, and, you know, of course, the proof will, will, we'll see the proof when therapies move into the clinic, but sounds like they're on the right track. It's an interesting approach to rescue and rejuvenate livers for transplant. Are there regulatory challenges to this approach? Uh, I'm sure there are regulatory challenges to this uh, approach. I mean, I, I think obviously you'll need to prove that, you know, the therapy is, is safe and effective. There aren't all target effects. You have to prove the, that obviously the efficacy and the duration uh, uh, of those therapies. Um, so, yeah, you know, you, you heard Jack talk a little bit about some of the, the, the challenges of the mRNA therapies, for example, and they're, they're using siRNA therapy. So it's a little different flavor of RNA therapies. Um, so there's, there's a different sort of, you know, risk profile associated with these, but absolutely. I mean, there, there are going to be very high regulatory barriers, um, to make sure that their therapies are, are, are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, even if they're not being used in vivo, if they're being used in livers outside the body, if those livers are going to be transplanted, then they're going to incur all of the same regulatory burdens. Obviously the, the potential to take this approach and, and do it in vivo would have tremendous payoff. What do you think the potential for that will be? Oh, it's huge. 
I mean, there's no, no question. It's huge. It, it sounds, it sounds like what, what Jack was referring to was doing this in sort of a step stepwise fashion. Right? So you start with livers to make them more suitable for transplantation. That would be like step one. Let's see how that goes. Let's prove that that works. And then step two would be more of the like in vivo sort of model where you're treating patients uh, to try to re- you know regenerate their own liver instead of needing a transplant. To me, that sounds like step two. Maybe they can do some of this in parallel. I don't, I don't really know. You'll have to see how, you know, they'll have to see how things sort of play out in terms of, uh, you know, clinical data and things like that. But um, the way I think about it is sort of sequentially, but no question, they would both be hugely impactful. I mean, even if you could, um, you know, start with making a larger percentage of organs suitable for transplantation, like that in and of itself is a game changer. Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable. Neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.